Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. If there was a combat aircraft that will define the U.S. and allied combat air power in the 21st century, the answer is clear. It is the F-35. It's the largest, most complex fighter program ever developed. The Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps are flying it, and so are over a dozen allies and partners. And we just added Germany to that list. The F-35 is bringing capabilities to the fight that used to be straight-up science fiction. The aircraft isn't just a fighter like we used to think about, a gun or missile platform like we saw with the F-86 or the early F-16s. It's sensors, processing power, and connectivity that has transformed what it means to be a fighter in profound ways. The ability for this aircraft to harness data is just as important as its kinetic lethality. But it's obvious this program has its critics. You don't need to scan headlines for very long to find statements that are critical of the aircraft. On one hand, that's normal with any major defense procurement effort. There are always opponents. And some of this is fair because the aircraft has lagged behind its anticipated development curve in key areas. And to this point, we all know the services wanted Block 4, which is the latest set of capabilities, yesterday. At Mitchell, we are realistic about this. However, there are some undeniable truths. First and foremost, the F-35 is the most capable fighter ever produced. It's undeniable, even when challenges are considered. Second, the threat environment demands these new attributes. They are no longer a nice-to-have. They are a must-have. And third, America's fighter force is falling off of a cliff, especially in the Air Force. Aircraft procured during the Reagan administration are structurally exhausted and their capabilities just don't hack it in the modern battle space. They're departing the inventory, whether we like it or not, because they're simply worn out. Now, consider the F-15s that made headlines at Kadena as Exhibit A. The problem is the Air Force doesn't have enough money to buy a new replacement fighter fast enough to offset these retirements. We've talked a lot about the Air Force's plans to retire over 1,000 aircraft over the next few years, but only buy around 400. Fighters are a key aspect of this losing equation. This trend is going to lead to risky capability and capacity gaps, just like we're seeing at Kadena. This is dangerous, so it's time to turn up the money allocated to the Air Force so they can buy the aircraft they need now. But here's the ultimate test. You'd be hard-pressed not to choose the F-35 if you were flying into combat. Now, as much as I love the Mighty Viper, I know flying and fighting these days in the fighter world is all about the F-35. So we are here to dig into these issues by discussing what it takes to build the F-35. I just toured the production line in Fort Worth, and it is impressive. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to get a sense of what's going on there by talking to some of the key folks at Lockheed Martin who are actually building the jets. Now, since we recorded this episode, there was a mishap with an F-35B at Naval Air Station Joint Reserve Base in Texas, and that's on the same field where they build the aircraft in Fort Worth. Bottom line, what matters most is the pilot got out safe, and we will find out what happened as the investigation runs its course. But honestly, this is news because it's so rare. 
the F-35 has actually done incredibly well and has a positive safety record. If you compare it to the F-15 or F-16 when it was fielded, it's done really well. So, you know, accidents do happen. This is ultra varsity flying. And as a career fighter pilot, I can attest to this, whether it's new airplanes or legacy types, stuff happens. So we will learn from it. We'll apply the lessons learned and we will move forward. So with that, let's get on with the episode. It is super exciting stuff. Today, we have Steve Howes, who's the Vice President of F-35 Production Operations. So Steve, great to see you. I know we got to hang out yesterday, but really, really, I'm looking forward to chatting with you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Like It was a pleasure to host you and the team yesterday, and I'm looking forward to fielding some questions from you. Awesome. And J.R. McDonald is with us as well. He's the Vice President for F-35 Business Development. So J.R., thanks for being on the show. Hey, sorry I missed you at the plant yesterday, Slick. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, really. It was just so awesome to spend time in Fort Worth on the production line. And given my personal history, I was the F-35 tactics development team lead while I was a weapons school instructor at Nellis and basically would fly out to Fort Worth for a week every month, just about. We had a, a group of core pilots, as you may remember some of those folks, and we would come down and hang out in Fort Worth and hang out with you guys. And really, we were there to fly the sims and helped us stay up to date with the program. We learned to fly the airplane through the simulators. We looked at really we were focused even all the way back then on a block 3f capabilities which was as we understood it the go to war jet right and we began writing 3-1.f35 developing the tactics techniques and procedures and basically it was going to be the bible for how the jet would be employed so it's been a couple of years so steve based on what we saw yesterday and i know there's so much to talk about but can you bring me up to speed on where we are today with respect to what's coming off the line Absolutely, Slick. So, um, yeah, being that you'd been gone for a couple of years, I'm sure that it looks different. Uh, as we stand today here at Fort Worth, we've got a little over, right, at 17,000 people, 17,000 employees. 4,000 of those are production operation employees who are actively working for me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, producing F-35s here at the domestic final assembly and checkout facility that we have. So we've got 261 aircraft in WIP today as we stand. That's what you got to see yesterday when you were out on the line. And so not only are we building aircraft for the United States in all three variants, but actively in production today, I've got eight other countries F-35s in WIP. We've got Australia, Denmark, obviously the United Kingdom. We've got Israeli jets, Italian jets, South Korean jets, Norwegian jets, and then here, a recent ad for us was uh, aircraft that are slated to go to Belgium. And so as we look at the whole program with eight partner nations and eight FMS customers already on the books, we're looking at what it will take to get other FMS customers added in the outlying years. And then really kind of the meat of it and probably the most interesting aspect for both you and your audience this year in 2022, we're on track to deliver 148 aircraft that is up five from last year. Uh, as we look at the outlying years, next year we're gonna make between 147 to 153 for a couple of years, for the next two years. And then we get up to what we've got as our stated worldwide capacity of 156 in the 2025 timeframe. And we continue to anticipate deliveries of 156 beyond 2025 based on the demand that we, that we see around the world. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, we think about 
it's a, a jet every other day coming off the line, right? I mean, you guys are just crushing it out there. It's it's absolutely incredible to see what you and, and the team, you're just accomplishing so much. And it's evident when you see it in person. And hopefully the audience will appreciate as as the customers, if you will, the ones that are going to be protected by the air power that these airplanes are going to provide. And, you know, the, the really cool thing, obviously, Steve, you get to see it every day, but the people that were down there and on your line and, and folks have been building jets for a long time at Fort Worth. So can you talk to us about how production evolved? And I'm guessing there's learning curves employed that make it better as you mature the processes. And I also I used to think the F-35 production line there is modern, but I'm guessing there's a ton of improvements as you retooled for the F-35. Oh, certainly. It's like you you hit the nail on the head. That's one thing here in Fort Worth, we're in our 80th year going all the way back to 1942. You know, when we look back on that entire legacy, it's it's pretty astounding to look at that evolution. We started with, you know, riveted bombers, B-24s, then B-36s and B-58s as we advanced to the 40s and the 50s in this particular facility. In the 60s is when this facility really started transitioning to tactical fighter aircraft. F-111s were produced here. We made 485 of those F-111s in the early 70s. And then that absolutely transitioned into what is the dominating landscape here in the Fort Worth facility with F-16s. 4,500 F-16s rolled out of this facility in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s, even, even in the early 2010s before we closed down that line and shifted it to Greenville. But really the last two decades have been very focused on F-35. We started a very small SDD footprint and over the course from 2005 into 2022, you got to see it in real life. It takes up the entire square footage of the plant here in Fort Worth with, with just this portion of it. So we constantly make upgrades both for efficiency, but technology insertion and capacity improvements. Um, we've got dozens of robotic integration opportunities that we're currently using, and I've got more that are in development phases. You know, we heard you talk in that last question about uh, 156 worldwide. We really want to push beyond that as we get some other capacity constraints alleviated here in these next couple of years. And what I've got to look at what I've got to get out of this, this field facility here, which is about 132 of that 156 worldwide. And, and I need to get beyond that. So we're constantly looking for ways to evolve. If you'd have been in this facility 10 years ago, your ears would have been ringing from rivets pinging. And that is no longer what you hear because of the advancements in how we produce this aircraft and the advancements in the aircraft itself. So it's a constant evolution. We're always looking for ways to take cost out of the jet, to increase capacity worldwide, and really to, pu to put more product in the hands of our warfighter to every extent possible. Yeah, I really want to, and you can help me paint this picture, right? Because we were thinking about this, this assembly line, but the physical building itself, if you go on Google Maps and look at it, it's over a mile long. So when you're thinking about like how enormous this whole this whole 
thing is, I mean, it's not like you can just walk down to one side or the other. I mean, people are literally riding bicycles through the assembly line. And I love that you made that point because it didn't dawn on me until you said it because we were going down driving golf carts around this building. But you're right. It was for, for the fact that you're manufacturing airplanes, it was really quiet in there. It's not like you had all needed like ear protection or anything like that. So it was re- just really incredible physically for what is happening there. And j- I just really want to point that out for the audience to appreciate the scale of the building. Anything you want to add on that? Yeah. So it's real interesting. Right after you all left yesterday, I had a service award uh, for employees that had, I had, I had a group of employees who had 40 and 45 years of service. And one of the questions that I asked them is, what is your most memorable, you know, your most memorable experience? And every single person, these are people that have been working here for 45 years. They said the first moment that you hit that factory, because you walk in it and it's like you described it super well. It's a mile long and you kind of walk out. Almost everybody walks out right in the middle. And so this place is seven and a half million square feet, 200 feet wide, 50 feet tall, 5,300 feet long. Just to scale it for everybody else who's listening, that's 130 football fields of dedicated F-35 production. And that's just here in Fort Worth. I've got a fairly large facility over in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, We've got facilities in Palmdale, California, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and Pinellas, Florida, that are also feeding into the F-35 production system. And so it it is a massive enterprise that it takes to output that three a week that you referred to just a minute ago. Thanks for that. And we've talked about, I've mentioned on the podcast a couple of times, I own and fly a World War II Stearman and obviously flew the F-16 in the Air Force. So I really appreciate you comparing and contrasting some of the historic things that that you mentioned before on, on what you've done there in that plant. And the notion of what we're producing it's, everything has changed so much. And of course, yeah, they're all airplanes, but that's where the commonality stops, right? I mean, there's there's not one part on my Stearman that could work on an F-16, right? <laughs> everything has completely changed, even like the nuts and bolts. So it's incredible how far we've come in such a short period of time and the results of what we've delivered are just incredible. So can you talk us through the line and what we see when we enter and go through the various sections of the plant? Absolutely. So this is both a final assembly and checkout facility, but it's also a major portion of the component build for F-35 as well. We actually assemble this jet in four major components, forward fuselage, which we produce 100% of here in Fort Worth. They actually run faster. They crank out one every one and a half days. Center fuselage is produced by our partners, Northrop Grumman out in Palmdale, California. Uh, Wings, we produce the all-up wing component here, and just for everybody's scale, the wing component itself is about 42% of the entire airplane. So when you kind of lump wing as a component in and of itself, it is a massive chunk of the airplane. And then F fuselages, which come from our other partners, British Aerospace, uh, out in Salisbury, UK. So when you walk in this facility, you've got the the area where we mate those four components together, where we do final assembly for those components, and then we roll it out to aircraft paint and final finishes. And then you've got the other portion of it, which is the component build, where we take literal structural big bone parts as single machine pieces and composite parts, and then start doing those sub-assemblies that feed into that area where we where we mate all those four components together. And so it is literally, you can watch a, a raw material part come from the, the factory from the south end, 
from either a vendor or our own factory, and you can go trace that part from the time that it loads into its tool, and you can walk through those 261 aircraft that I have in WIP today and see a finished airplane come out on the back end of my flight line here at the FACOS facility. So we, we do everything from stem to stern here at Fort Worth for A variants. We fly them out. We have two company flights and two government flights where our DCMA pilots do acceptance on those. Same thing for our carrier variants. That's two and two. And then for Stovals, there's an extra company flight and an extra government flight where they do hover mode testing, flight testing for us as well. So in addition to this massive production scale, we actually do a significant amount of flying. Monday of last week, we set a record for 14 sorties in, in one day here at the Fort Worth facility. So when the weather's good, not only do you have this flurry of activity inside the plant producing, but we're also doing all of the flight tests to support delivering three a week to all of our customers around the world as well. So it's, it's never boring. It is a massive enterprise and it's just a, a joy and a pleasure. I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet getting to have this job and be able to provide to, to both our warfighters and our allied warfighters, something that literally protects our way of life. Yeah, that, it's it's incredible. And, and you had said it yesterday, uh, which which kind of gave me a chuckle. As a, and as we're talking about it, how you said that this isn't a tourist attraction, but I mean, it could be. I mean, it really could be. People would pay money to go see what's going on over there. And I just wanted to give a shout out and a thanks to all of the folks working on the line because they were just incredible. And we were, you know, not really interrupting their day, but uh, I know that we always have a little bit of an impact on the line when we're down there. So I just really appreciate what they're doing. And well, they're they're all patriots too, Slick. It's worth noting this facility has been here for 80 years. It's been an IAM represented facility and our working relationship has always been very closely aligned with them because they share that exact mentality that I just described. And they've gone through that entire evolution as a workforce right along with us and know what the future holds and what else that we've got to bring to bear. Yeah, absolutely. It was just just so cool. So again, thanks. And JR, I want to emphasize something here. What we see at Fort Worth is really the assembly of what's produced at a lot of sub-production sites. That, and we kind of mentioned that, but things like the engine, control surfaces, sensors, computers, landing gear, uh, it's all coming from various uh, teams around the country and even from partner nations who are also buying the aircraft. So what's it like to manage that sort of production process? I mean, to me, it would feel like an air traffic controller managing airliners out of LaGuardia on a Friday night, right? Like a serious effort in anticipation, organization, timing, and discipline. So can you talk to us about that? Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing to watch. It, it's, it's like an orchestra being conducted. The F-35 is made up of more than 50,000 parts, and, and each of those parts has to be inspected at every stage of production and make sure there meets, you know, the strict program standards. The key here is to make sure that there's no risk to F-35 and, and that it's safe. And, and I think yesterday you got a sense of scale, all those pieces and parts coming together in the plant. And, and it's that scale and the scope of the program that, that makes F-35 the most significant defense program in history. It puts about 72 billion domestic impact into the country every year. And that also allows us to create about 298,000 jobs around the country. So, so very domestically, just, just in the U.S., more than 1,650 suppliers putting all those pieces 
pieces and parts into the system. And a thousand of those are small business, which, which is very significant for us. So yeah, it, it's amazing to watch it all come together. I give a lot of credit to uh, Steve Howe's organization, the production folks, as well as our supply chain managers who are, are really the, the boots on the ground, making sure that, that we meet all the standards for all those parts as they come into the system. Yeah. Now, can you talk to us about COVID? Now, did that really impact your production cycle? Oh my gosh. Yes. Massive. Quite frankly, it's still impacting the production cycle because of, of, of upstream things. But, you know, here in 2020 and 2021, it impacted it, but we kept delivering. So after we had some significant impacts from one of those four major components that I referred to earlier, we updated the plan and in 2020, we ended up producing 136 to a plan of 133. And last year we delivered 142 to a plan of 140. So first and foremost, we kept going. And the way that we kept going during that critical time frame, especially in that really in that second quarter of 2020, when things started to really go crazy, we implemented an alternate work schedule. So we worked with our union represent representatives and we actually divided our workforce into three groups. And so every those, those three groups then alternated over the course of three weeks. So you'd have two groups that worked two weeks out of three extra hours. It wasn't like they got, they, they didn't have to go fulfill all of the work obligations. We were working six days a week with an extended work week for those two weeks. And then they were out for a week. And then that allowed us to offset. And so you got to see the, the aircraft and you got to see the volume of people that we put on there. What that did was allow us a little bit of social distancing. Obviously mask protocols were, were implemented and, and very rigidly enforced, but that, that schedule allowed us to repeat repeat over the course of that entire duration as as people started getting affected and started people started getting sick and uh, and we're out for the quarantine period of time as well and so that flexibility working with the union was a huge deal during that time frame because it was a full commitment by the entire enterprise to continue to deliver in that very very impactful time and so we're, we're, we're on the, we're, it's kind of nice to be on the backside of those massive amount of impacts. And now it's in a recovery mode that gets us to, to the rates that I was giving you earlier, back up into those 150s so that we hit what our, what our utilization is and our capacity is from a worldwide standpoint. So, so JR, what about supply chain issues? We hear about it everywhere else in society. How did that affect you guys? Well, we recognized right away that we absolutely had to keep the supply chain healthy. And so right from the beginning of the pandemic, we started accelerating payments to more than 10,750 of our suppliers. And we continue to accelerate those cash payments throughout the pandemic. And, and this is a place I think it's important that we give credit to the Department of Defense because in the early stages in 2020, DOD said that they were going to increase progress payments from what they used to do of 80% up to 90 and that gave us the ability to pass all of that accelerated payments directly to our suppliers. 
and it, it flowed down with a focus on small businesses. And, and I mentioned the supply chain managers before those managers kept in touch sometimes on a daily basis with especially the small businesses to see how they were doing. And, and they would let us know if they were at risk and we were able to flow those progress payments to them and keep them going. And, and just this is just another example of, of the importance of stable funding in a, in a program this large because it affects so many people throughout the supply chain, the, the 298,000 bees and, and the large, large supply base that we have. Right. Now, it's so obvious, you know, that the F-35 absorbed a lot of lessons learned from the F-22, which Lockheed Martin designed and built. Uh, but in many ways, it's just so much better. I mean, you guys employed lessons learned, advanced technologies, and the end product just got better. And I think stealth coatings are a great example in this lane. So do you mind to walk us through that sort of innovation improvement? No, not at all. It's like, yeah, it is. It was the most significant production and maintainability improvement that was levied as a lessons learned on F-35 from F-22. Um, when one looks at the evolution of coatings going all, you know, for Lockheed Martin, we go all the way back to F-117. The difference is dramatic. You know, a maintainer on F-35 can access panels for maintenance on this aircraft with almost no LO coating restoration. Literally, there's interchangeable replaceable panels and the only thing that a maintainer has to do to access them is, is to pop up, we call it a little donut that they pop out of the recess in that countersunk fastener. If the, the panel then comes off, maintenance on the aircraft occurs, you put it back down, you fasten it down, and then you go put new donuts back where those recesses exist. and then it's ready to fly and it's ready to fly with a low loss rating that it started the mission with super significant improvement yeah that, that is absolutely incredible and it's awesome to get these insights on how the airplane is made and maintained we certainly come a long way from when i was there last but what, i have to press you on this a little bit you know I, I wanted to bring up one of the key issues for our audience that we hear often is just the cost of the airplane taxpayers and politicians have really questioned the quote bang for the buck that the f-35 provides so jr do you mind to uh, give us your take on that yeah, sure. The F-35 fifth gen capabilities deliver the most lethal, survivable, and connected fighter aircraft in the world. And that's important because it allows the pilots to go do their mission and come home safely, which is hugely important. It, it's more than just a, a fighter by itself. It's a force multiplier. It takes fifth gen capabilities. And, and let me just put it this way. You take this fifth gen aircraft, you put it into any network, any joint all domain operation, JADC2, Whatever, whatever you want to talk about, whatever network you have there. And now you have an aircraft with the absolute best sensors. And because of stealth, it can be very, very close to the threat. It can take that information and using our demonstrated ability, we can pass that information across the domain to, to people, to allies, so that they can use that information also. And then Last, of course, we have the ability to to kinetically defeat a target that's out there or non-kinetically defeat, or we can pass that target information to any of the other systems across the domains so that they can take care of that target. And that's that's the operational side, but on the maintenance side of the house, advanced data analytics are, are really helping us drive the reliability of the airplane up, which brings costs down and availability up, which is hugely important. And, and on the bang for the buck aspect, I've looked to some of the competitions that we've had around the world, especially Finland and Switzerland. Those were incredibly rigorous competitions. Finland lasted six years and, and looked at comparable aircraft across the fighter spectrum from other countries. 
And in every category, the, both countries came back and said that F-35 had the best capability, it had the best sustainability, and what surprised a lot of people is that it also had the best affordability. So the international partners validated it through, through multiple rigorous testing and comparisons with everything else in the world and decided that absolutely it was the best bang for the buck. And, and the, the economies of scale that we're getting from the international partners and our FMS countries out there really, really drives affordability across the life cycle of the program. And, and it's giving us the bang for the buck. Yeah. I want to also ask you, like any new jet entering the inventory is going to have like teething problems, right? And I, I remember back in the early days of F-22, when they first deployed to the Pacific, the software folks forgot about the international dateline and the onboard computers crashed when they crossed over uh, on a deployment. And people were frustrated. It made headlines and we can laugh about it now because it was obviously fixed, but these things do happen. So what's the process been like for F-35? I mean, to your guys' credit, the aircraft has had an incredibly low attrition rate. So it's a comparative good news story, I'm thinking on this side, but what, what have been the biggest challenges and how are you worked through to tackle those? So I think we're both going to feel a chance of this because there's two different spectrums that you get here. I'll start first. Massive amount of composites on this airplane and, and in addition to not just composites, because composites are great, they're super lightweight, they give you a massive strength ratio relative to aluminum or other products but they also drag with it some other production implications. And what we got to learn on F-22 and apply in the design phases of F-35 made the actual production of the airplane go as, as smooth as it has been and is a big contributor how, to how we've come down those learning curves. I just get to give a personal example here. I started in here once I exited the Air Force and got my education. I started on F-22 program and then I went over to F-35 and you got to fix some of the some of the problems, ones like you just talked about and then go, all right, this is a way that we go make this not happen on the next generation platform and then and then beyond that as well. And then another big one is integrating that low observable coding. You know, what we talked about earlier, which is good for both production and maintenance once it hits the field required an awful lot of process changes and updates the real root for the lessons learned in that book uh, go back to what we did on f-22 and learning how to make it better and how to make it perform better in a cost-effective world so jr do you want to hop in yeah, let me let me also say that I think one of the things that has has been difficult to understand as we developed it and, and feel that it is our, our global sustainment system, trying to change the way maintenance is done with a fleet that's part, you know, 16 countries are part of the, the worldwide fleet and the sustainment system works to provide all of them parts on time. And when we first went about setting that up, there were some growing pains as, as we worked to the transportation of those parts to various places around the world working through customs and tariffs and and making sure that it was a smooth flow of parts and helping each country shift to a fifth gen sustainment system as well as just a fifth gen fighter with the ALICE system, the autonomous autonomous logistics information system, which really kept track of, of every aspect of sustainment. And so it was a, a, a steep learning curve for each country as we brought the GSS on board. And, and there were some growing pains in that. I think it's stabilizing now and, and the countries that are using the airplane recognize the advantages, like I mentioned, the data analytics and others that fifth gen sustainment brings with the GSS. 
Now, obviously, operational jets are being produced, but there are new versions still in the works. So how do you guys work this? I think I heard you call it capability insertion. So what's the scale and scope of the design team and how they integrate with you at the production level? Yeah, so today's aircraft, the, the Block 3 FF-35s that we have, provide unmatched lethality, survivability in any environment. But as you know, and as, as all fighter pilots know, the, the threat gets a vote. And they're continuously upgrading their aircraft, and, and they're trying to erode or disrupt the advantages that we have right now. So we, we can't stand still. So exactly as you mentioned, it's an incrementally delivered modernization program. So we call it Continuous Capability Development and Delivery C2D2. And that allows us to continuously upgrade and to stay ahead of the, the threat that's out there. The big upgrade that we've got going on now is our Block 4 upgrade, which is in process. Some of those improvements are already on the airplane. But but this is probably, well, it, it definitely the, the most expansive modernization of any fighter in, in history. More than 75 specific upgrades to, to systems across the aircraft, and that's across all three variants and, and around the world with the, all the countries that use the airplane. And, and some of those, like I said, are being delivered ahead of time, and, and some of them are going to be delivered in a series of upgrades. The first part of the upgrade is Tech Refresh 3, which is a hardware and software upgrade that's improving memory, it's improving the, the mission computer, displays, etc. And then continuous upgrades through Block 4 for the next couple of years for those 75 upgrades I talked about. Yeah, it is absolutely amazing. I got to ask you both this one. So what are some features of the jet that you're most proud of from a tech perspective, but you think are really underappreciated or not well known to the public? That's an easy one for me. And, you know, we get all of this feedback from any of the customers who are flying the platform that it isn't just a fighter aircraft that gets to go persecute a mission without the enemy seeing it, that it's this network that it's this airborne sensor platform and what a lot of people don't know is that a significant number of the sensors on this aircraft are not some component that's added to it kind of as a unique standalone feature but we have antenna that are integrated into the structure of the airplane so control surfaces and outer mold line features actually have antenna and sensors literally built into them and not a lot of people know that it, it drags along with it some process things that were technically challenge, challenging to overcome, but just make it really, really powerful for how it integrates with everything else. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here also. You know, when you say fifth generation fighter, the first thing everybody thinks about is stealth. And stealth is a tremendous advantage. But I think what the pilots really appreciate is sensor fusion. It's like you know that one of the things all fighter pilots want more of is situational awareness. And the pilot with the most situational awareness has a huge advantage. And sensor fusion brings that to a pilot in an F-35. Think of, I, I tell people that F-35 is a little bit like a Star Wars airplane in that we have R2-D2 sitting in the airplane, running the sensors for us, helping the sensors uh, decide which sensor should go after the next target, not, not to shoot the target, but to uh, the target. And, and those all talking together then present you a situational awareness picture in your cockpit that is better than than any platform in the world. And, and the fact that we are so interoperable allows us to take that picture and share it with the, the rest of the friendlies on the battle space. I, I think most people don't really appreciate sensor fusion. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'll just throw the, the quick anecdote in there that what made a really good F-16 or F-15 pilot was the fact that they could process all the information they were hearing and translate it into their movements. We say it was like the F-16, it's like flying the piccolo. You're moving all the, the switches all over the hands-on throttle and stick. And so, you know, if you heard that the adversary was at, or your target was at 24,000 feet and you rolled your... Uh, your antenna in the perfect zone to to catch it that's how you were really getting in the f-35 you you don't you don't have these small things where like you you, you're not rolling your radar just to the right right position during an intercept the the jet's doing it for you and then you've got you know the pilot has so much more bandwidth and capability to to think about other things versus just these these tasks that the jet can do for you and then fuse it all together and really my takeaway is this is an information age fighter and that's really the game-changing piece and and i'm i'm so sorry that we're going to be at the end of our time today but the good news is we're going to circle back on another episode with the rest of the story and talk to some of the test pilots and what it takes to build the f-35 and take it to the sky in their first flight so gentlemen i cannot say thank you enough to you and your team for hosting us in Fort Worth and for talking to our audience on the podcast. So thanks so much, both Steve and JR. It was our pleasure, Slick. It was great to meet you and the team in real life. And thank you very much for having us. Enjoy it, Slick. Thank you. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.